Okay, so as I was saying, we're doing this little mini-series on Ecclesiastes. And the first week, I talked about the intro of the book and the conclusion of the book. Because the best way to understand what a book is about is read the beginning, read the end, and then see if there's a key theme that goes through it. If you don't have time, though I can't imagine Belmont students, you would ever do this. You don't have time to read all of a book that's assigned. You just want to skim it. You generally want to read the intro and the ending and then kind of skim and see if there's a main theme that keeps coming up over and over again, right? You better at least get that. So with Ecclesiastes, the, the, what the beginning talks about is that life is havel, is the Hebrew word. It's translated different ways. Some translations say life is vanity, that's the old King James, and actually I believe the ESV does that translation as well, vanity. The NIV, which is the translation I have used most of my Christian life, says life is meaningless. That's worse than vanity um, because it's not a book about existentialism, right? Uh, really what the word Havel means, and I talked about this the first week. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you missed that. Havel is the idea of frustrating, that things are frustrated, things can't reach their goal. Something's went wrong, and you can't straighten what is crooked. And then the conclusion of the book says, these are not just the ravings of a crazy person, or an unbeliever, or a skeptic. The words of this book, the, the end of the book says, are faithful, upright, and true. So you can't dismiss the book. The book is wisdom literature. It's saying to you, in light of the reality, particularly the reality that the fall has happened, that sin has entered the world and messed up everything, in light of that, how then shall we live? And Ecclesiastes, the conclusion of the book, says this, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. So God is gracious to tell us this is what you are made for, to fear God and keep his commandments. It's where this um, group of theologians back in the 1600s, we call them the Westminster Assembly of Divines, they coined this little phrase or they adapted that to this statement you might have heard. What is the chief end of man? Or what is the chief purpose or goal, telos, of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. They basically get that from the end of Ecclesiastes, okay? Now, tonight, we're going to look at this theme, which is actually kind of a surprising theme. Life is full of frustration, yet God gives joy in the midst of the frustration. He gives good gifts that bring joy, good gifts that come from his hand. And we're going to trace this theme and see why it matters, why it's a bigger deal than we might think. Because some things that are really important don't often start out seeming that important. Have you ever found that? You know, maybe it's that first week when the syllabus has went over and you're kind of blow it off and then you get around about this time and you're like, oh, maybe that was important. I need to go back and uh, look at that. Now, I was thinking about this. When I was in college in the mid-80s at a place called Berkeley College of Music, it was kind of a crazy place. It was most of the people that you never thought from your high school would go to college. 
and they were at Berkeley College of Music, right? You didn't have to, any kind of audition to get in back in those days. You literally had to have a minimum of five years musical experience, which they defined pretty loosely. It could even include like listening intently to records for five years. You could go to Berkeley, right? It's one of the reasons they had an 85% freshman dropout rate too. But uh, it, some of the characters that were Berkeley College Music were kind of hoodlums, I'll just tell you. And it meant that uh, probably more than most other colleges, we had fire alarms go off all the time. And after a while, you just began to be like, oh, it's another fire alarm at two in the morning. You know, no, I'm not getting up. Well, I remember one, uh, one spring, actually it was, it was still kind of winter, but it was spring semester of my freshman year, um, fire alarm went off three in the morning, just like always, except this time somebody knocked on my door and said, get up. And I remember getting up, I remember going out to the hall and there was smoke, a lot of smoke. Now, the significance of that was that Berkeley, the main building is an old hotel that was a fire trap and they'd had a fire in the 40s and a bunch of people died because the only fire escape was a single spiral staircase that went through the middle of the building. Now, I was on the fourth floor, which was the bottom floor of where the dorms were, but floors five, six, seven, and eight all had to come down that single staircase. And the RD, later, after we were outside, well, here's what, you know, we go outside, and we were on the bottom floor, so we got out pretty quick. And I'll, you know, I'll never forget walking outside and turning around and seeing every floor with flames pouring out. Because, you know, they had practice rooms at the end of every floor, which had soundproof doors, but the soundproof doors were also fireproof doors. So the fire started in the fourth floor and burned all the way to the eighth floor on that corner that was the practice rooms. And by the time the smoke alarms went off on the eighth floor, the building was pretty fully engulfed. As a matter of fact, my parents saw it in the newspaper in Baltimore the next morning, and they were like, what in the world? Well, I remember, okay, that was like, oh, I guess this is a big deal. And then... After we got to go back into the cafeteria, um, probably like six in the morning, I remember our RD, this guy Jim, telling us you know, about what happened. And he said, you know, when he got out, or when he you know, heard the alarm go off and he goes outside and he sees you know, a little bit of flame kind of lick out from under the door of the practice room area. And he said he thought about going over there and open the door. Do you ever see that movie Backdraft? So the fire chief told him later that if he had opened that door with this oxygen-starved fire because the soundproof door was also, you know, pretty much airtight as well, as soundproof doors tend to be, that it would have caused a backdraft. It would have exploded, and everybody on the floors above that would have been caught in the fire. So sometimes things are a much bigger deal than you might think, right? I would contend that that's what Ecclesiastes is teaching us about joy. That we tend to think of joy as basically something that helps us get through the frustration. It gives us maybe a bit of a reprieve when things are difficult. We have these little moments of rest, and there is a sense in which that's true. But I would contend that the, that the issue of joy is a much bigger deal than that. And the way Ecclesiastes tells us that is by saying that joy comes from the hand of God. And that things that come to us from the hand of God are a very big deal. Now we're going to see how this theme goes as we read these passages. 
And you're going to see actually a progression in intensity as this theme goes through the book. It starts out in chapter 2. You can see this on your little scripture thing that I handed out. Chapter 2, verse 22 says this. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Remember, beneath the sun is life in this world after sin has entered the world. It doesn't mean trying to make life work apart from God. It's life in a fallen world is what it means to be under the sun. He says about man, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. That's that word havel. So this also is frustrating. Verse 24, wisdom in light of that. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, that means apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, in chapter 3, this theme comes up again. And here it's a little stronger. Here he adds the idea that I thought about it, I reflected on it, and I perceived or I understood that this is so. Here's how it's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, start at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is God's gift to man. This is one of the ways you know that this is not an eat, drink, and be merry counsel. It's eat, drink, find enjoyment because it's from the hand of God. But look, it goes on. In chapter 5, now it goes from, you know, just kind of a blank statement, a basic statement in chapter 2. Chapter 3, it's, okay, I thought about this, and I still believe this. And now in chapter 5, it's, behold, look. This is a good thing. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity or this is frustrating. It is a grievous evil. Now this is interesting because chapter 5, 18, verse 6, 2 is the exact middle of the book. And there is a certain structure to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes which puts a particular emphasis on the middle of the book. The middle of books are often important. So this is the, the key idea right at the middle of the book. And then one more place where it brings up this 
idea, though there actually are more even than I'm going to read tonight. But this one is really interesting because the next time this idea comes up, now it's commanded. See, it was, you know, just issued as kind of an idea. And then, yeah, I thought about it. I've perceived, I've understood. Yep, I still agree with this idea. And then it was, behold, look at this. It's a good thing. And then, now it's take joy. It's a command. Ecclesiastes 9, start at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That means your frustrating life that he's given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It's a little dark. I get that. But the point is, you're finite. You can't do everything. So what God has put before you to do, work at it with all your might. That's actually a really freeing verse. It's actually one of the most freeing verses I know. You're finite. You can't do everything. You don't have to do everything. As a matter of fact, note this. You can't do everything the Bible says all at once. So sometimes you have to do one thing and not the other. And this book, Ecclesiastes, says, that's right. That's, that's, that's right. That's the way God has ordained the world. So, joy. Now, when I read that, did some of that sort of strike you as kind of strange? Like, that's really Christian? This is why people have wrestled with this book. And why it was important that we look at the conclusion, where it clearly says all the words of this book are upright and true. So I didn't just pick out some like unchristian parts of the book. All of the words of this book are upright and true. So what are we to make of this? If all of life is frustrating, how do you explain the joy that Ecclesiastes talks about? Of course, one way to find joy in life is to live out of touch with reality. And there are people that pursue that. As a matter of fact, we may talk about that as one of the schemes that people pursue. Because the book of Ecclesiastes talks about a number of schemes that mankind pursues to try to live without tasting the frustration of the fall. We tend to throw ourselves into things that we think offer relief or an escape from the frustration, but it, don't, it doesn't work, okay? So, you can live out of touch with reality, you can pursue different schemes, but Ecclesiastes calls us to see life as it really is. No sugarcoating the frustration. But, at the same time, tells us to find joy in life in the midst of the frustration. Now, I have this quote here. I love this quote by this guy, Bill Egger. Bill Egger is a professor Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also an excellent jazz pianist. So he has a you know, doctor of philosophy degree from Harvard, but he also has a degree in uh, piano from one of the more prestigious um, universities in Paris. So he's, he's a great guy for talking about um, music and art and those sorts of things. I've long appreciated his work. He has a chapter um, in, in this book, It Was Good, Making Art to the Glory of God, on how do you to represent evil in art as a Christian. And I thought this little part was really interesting. He says this, how does a Christian composer articulate a view of the world which has been profoundly polluted by sin and yet 
that provides for genuine hope at the same time. The question provides us with a kind of test of authenticity. Artists often fall into one of two extremes, optimism and pessimism. The optimist arrives at a happy ending, so to speak, without honestly passing through the valley of the shadow of death. A good deal of music today is optimistic in that it tells of joy and peace without reckoning with evil. The pessimist is realistic about evil, but has little or no hope. The element of redemption is the missing dimension. In contrast, the biblical worldview is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Unlike optimism, the biblical worldview tells us to look evil in the eye. It is real, but unlike pessimism, the Bible proclaims genuine hope because Christ has inaugurated a great reversal of the fall, the way C.S. Lewis says, at the cross, death began to work backwards, right? Music that voices this biblical philosophy will be both realistic about the darkness and unashamed of the light. Few people have as powerfully stood with integrity, neither yielding to optimism nor pessimism as African Americans. Forged in the clandestine church, hammered out in the anvil of oppression and immense suffering, spirituals, gospel music, the blues, jazz, ragtime, these are so many related styles that express the central message of deep sorrow and deep joy. The theme of sorrow and joy in black music is a subject in itself. Being real in art is only possible when we can be real with God. And I think that's very true from my study of those types of music. It also should be true about the Christian church. Neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Joy in the midst of frustration. Well, let's look at how Ecclesiastes talks about this. Ecclesiastes teaches, as I said, that joy and satisfaction are a gift from God. So when we looked at chapter 5, it brings out this. It's not enough to have it all. Do you have the ability to enjoy it? Because joy and satisfaction, any joy and satisfaction you have is from the hand of God. So I would say that when you survey the book of Ecclesiastes, the main reason for taking joy in life is that it comes as a gift from the hand of God. The words gift and giver appear all over the place in Ecclesiastes. And it's not what you would expect because we generally think of it as a book about frustration and about how things don't work and about how everything is meaningless. But it's actually maybe better understood as a book about God, the giver of good gifts, in the midst of the frustration. You see, the frustration is the context. But what the book is wanting to point out is even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve broke God's heart and turned away from him, he wasn't done pursuing them. And one of the ways he pursues is he gives good gifts. Jesus taught this very same thing, right? When the disciples asked him to teach us how to pray, do you remember what he does? He tells them a couple parables about the nature of the Father. He tells the the main reason you're not praying or don't know how to pray is because you don't know who the Father is and what he's like. 
But your heavenly father is not like a father who when his son asks for fish, he gives him a stone or a scorpion. Or when he asks for bread, he gives him a stone. Your father isn't like that, right? So understanding the giver of good gifts is incredibly important. And and particularly, I love the phrase, these come from the hand of God. Think about that. Hand feeding is intimate. I remember when, um, I guess it was when we had Cooper, um, somewhere along the line, one of the nurses said to me, I didn't know this, maybe everybody knew this except me, that when a newborn baby is born, their eyes don't focus very well. They can't focus very far, and they can't focus close up. They can focus about from here to here, from the mother's breast to her face. God's built that into the way things work, that the baby's eyes can only focus there. I was thinking about this too, because, you know, we love our little dog. She's a sweet little dog, right? But most of the time, you know, when she does her business, she comes in expecting a treat, I just throw it on the floor. But I don't know what you would think of me if that's what I treated my children, <laughs> right? Like, you don't treat your children that way, right? And sometimes it's nice to actually, you know, get her to do a little dance and, and feed her, like, literally from your hand, right? She'll do that if you like. Um, and she enjoys doing it because she likes to bask in the approval of others. You know, this is how dogs are made, and they remind us of what we were made for, I think. Um, there's something about this from the hand of God. The image that that's supposed to evoke for you is this intimate, hand-delivered gifts from the giver of good gifts. So, what you have, Ecclesiastes is saying, is good. God gives good gifts. But the most important gift is the ability to enjoy what you have. And the key to that is knowing that it comes from the hand of God. You see, all of life and joy is a signpost pointing to heaven. It talks about that in Ecclesiastes 3, that God has given us this longing. He set eternity in the hearts of mankind, right? But what I want you to see is, while the joy is a signpost pointing to heaven, heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because God is there. I think a lot of times we think of heaven as escape, but that's not the way the Bible thinks of it at all. The Bible thinks the reason heaven is a good, glorious place is because God is there, not because we escape here. I know there are a lot of songs that really misunderstand that. There really are, and both hymns and modern songs. But the biblical focus is on who is in heaven? Whom have I in heaven but you? The psalmist teaches us. I, I love this hymn we sing sometimes. Samuel Rutherford wrote these lines, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. It's from a hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. You see, the gifts are to point us to the giver who is our greatest joy. And again, when I said one of the gifts is 
even the longing to not be satisfied with the here and now. So this is an interesting thing. Ecclesiastes says life is frustrating. God gives us good gifts that bring joy, yet God also gives us a good gift, a certain kind of frustration, a certain kind of ache, what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing. If you've ever read his essay, The Weight of Glory, excellent, excellent essay. So it's in Ecclesiastes 3, right? He has made, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God has made you want to see how the dots connect, and then he's frustrated your ability to see them. And that's the longing that we live with, right? Even the longing for more is itself a gift. And I would just say this. A Christianity that can't make sense of why we love nature and sex and of why we're drawn to art and music that's full of life and passion is not biblical Christianity. And I think in a lot of ways, one of the reasons I love the book of Ecclesiastes is it holds up this kind of world-affirming spirituality. And for a lot of people, they're like, that's, that's not how I was raised. That's not really what I think. I'll just point one other verse to you. Um, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can listen or you can look at it. I don't care. But 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 6 says this. Well, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's talking about a doctrine of demons that is being taught by men who are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Strong. It's actually probably the strongest denunciation of any false teaching that Paul ever um, issues. And you know what these people are teaching? This doctrine of demons? Well, they're teaching that the creation is not good. Here, here's, here's what he says, 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 6. He says that it's a doctrine of demons taught by hypocritical liars. For, because everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving connects the gift with the giver. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. That doesn't mean you have to find a Bible verse justifying you enjoying something. It means that when God made the creation, he looked at it and he said, this is good. That's when it was set apart by the word of God, by this declaration. And then Timothy, Paul goes on to Timothy and says, if you point these things, if you put these things before the brothers, or some translations say point these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. What were they teaching? If you back up a, a verse or two, you see they were teaching people that you should abstain from marriage or sex and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So Paul says to Timothy, you're a good minister of Christ, brought up in the good doctrine of the faith. If you point out to the brothers that everything God has made is good. Do you know that the world is not fallen? It's not sinful. It's not. The creation is not sinful. It's frustrated. It's cursed. It's frustrated. In Romans 8, Paul says that the whole creation is groaning because it's frustrated because mankind, who was to be the steward of creation, helping bring out all the God-glorifying potential that God built into his creation, is not fulfilling his role. He's using the creation for his own ends rather than using it and helping it to, 
to, to bring this fruition of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But there's a day coming when the creation will be released into glorious freedom, the freedom that the adopted children of God have. That's Romans 8. That's the biblical picture. And the Bible is actually way more affirming of the goodness of things like food and sex, the creation, than most Christians. It's unfortunate, but it's one of the reasons we need the book of Ecclesiastes. So, all of the joy that God gives is a signpost pointing to heaven, not just a, a, a heaven as like a, a place of escape, but heaven is the place where God, the greatest joy is, but this is important. These gifts that bring joy are not merely signposts. They bring joy now when we accept them as gifts from God's hand. Now, this is important because a lot of Christians, I think, uh, fall into, you know, kind of platonic philosophy, maybe without realizing it. But it's the idea that the things of this world grow strangely dim and that's really the good thing. I know that's hyperbole, that old hymn, right? The things of the world go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, right? I get that it's hyperbole, but I also am concerned that you think that it's more spiritual to say nothing in this world is good. It's just good if it helps me think about God in heaven. And, and there's verses that we invoke, like, you know, set your heart on things above rather than things on this earth. I know that verse. I also know that it's often misunderstood because it's talking about Remember why you have a standing before God because Jesus stands before the throne of God and pleads his wounds for you. It's saying, let that control your sense of who you are and what God thinks about you. It's not saying that the creation is bad and unspiritual. So the gifts are not just signposts. They're actually good gifts that we are to enjoy now. You see, there's three other reasons in Ecclesiastes for taking joy in the gifts that God has given us in this life. As I read through this, and there, here's a couple of them. I won't develop these, but I'll just point them out. One is the brevity of life. Life doesn't last long. Remember, you only have so many days before Sheol. And Sheol, in the Old Testament understanding, is the place of the dead. So you only will live for so long. So take joy in the gifts that God has given now. So the brevity of life is one of the reasons you take joy in the gifts now. Enjoy them now. This is not saying, well, the gifts are just good because they'll help you think about, you know, dying one day and therefore none of these things matter. That's not, Ecclesiastes doesn't teach that. It says life is brief, therefore God gives you good gifts to enjoy now. Another reason is you should accept your lot since you can't change it. So enjoy the gifts that are part of your lot. Enjoy the gifts now, not just because they might help you think about spiritual things. And then finally, the uncertainty of the future. You don't know how long your days will be. So enjoy the gifts that God has given you now. You see that? So I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, gifts just give us joy only if we think about God. And the only joy is like thinking about God. That's not really true. Ecclesiastes is saying the gifts are good gifts now, and enjoying them now is another gift of God. So it's wrong to see the joys in this life as merely a catalyst for thinking about heaven. 
But it's also wrong to find joy in life without receiving these gifts from God's hand. Does that make sense? In other words, if you just think that they're good in themselves, rather than helping you connect to the giver of good gifts, well, then they're what we call idols. Idols are when you take good gifts of God and you take them as just pure good in themselves. Rather than saying, these good gifts connect me and remind me of the character of the giver of good gifts, which is God. So you can fall off on one of two ways. You can say, well, you know, the gifts are only, only good because they help me think of heaven one day. Or you can say the gifts are good in themselves and I don't need heaven because I've got the good, the good gifts. The key is these are good gifts that remind you and teach you about the giver of good gifts who one day you will see face to face. And your joy and your satisfaction will be so much greater than what you have now that you can hardly imagine it. Does that make sense? All right. Another thing we need to say. To receive a gift, you must be humbled. Some people have a really hard time receiving gifts. <laughs> they hate gifts. I can't imagine that. Gifts are my love language. But some people really hate gifts because they feel it will obligate them. For some of you, maybe your story is such that the way gifts were used, manipulative ways, makes it hard for you to receive gifts. For others, like, I don't want a gift, I want to pay for it myself. You know, I don't want to be dependent on anybody, I don't even have to say thank you. You may want to explore that, where that's coming from. <laughs> Biblically, gifts should bring humility. And what the wisdom literature, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and those things, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So joyfully and humbly receive joy in life as joy from God. Whether it's joy in eating or drinking, in our work, in our play, in our music, uh, in, our, in our spouse. All these things can be joy as gifts from God. And receiving them as gifts is a good thing. This is how we should live. You know, one of the themes of my life is the joy in the treasure hunt. Now, it becomes out of control sometimes because um, I've got, you know, 6,000 books and 1,000 records, and it's hard for me to leave treasures where I find them. You know, I have to rescue them. But there is something actually about that, about God even helping you see things as the treasures that they really are. I do think there's something about that that we should try to cultivate. There's one other thing that's really interesting, though, is that Ecclesiastes teaches that the gift of joy from the hand of God is for those who obey God's commands. Remember what I said about the conclusion of the book. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. So how does that make sense? Is that legalism? Like we can only enjoy things if we're good people? Well, here's the thing to remember. The Bible does make a connection between obeying God and joy. It does. But it's not a cause-effect relationship. It's not that simple. Here's the thing to remember. Adam and Eve, before sin came into the world, were happy and holy. And after the sin came into the world, they were sinful and miserable. Right? And God has always, from the very beginning, pointed us to his provision for changing not just our holiness or lack of holiness, but our misery into happiness. 
And it connects to how then were we made to live. You see, Christ earned joy. Book of Hebrews says that. For the joy set before him, he suffered the shame of the cross. And in our union with him, by faith in him, you get what he gets. What he earned, you get. A share in his joy and satisfaction, even in the midst of the frustration. So we find actually a sense of joy that comes to us by faith because Jesus models for us that true joy is found in obeying the Father's commands. Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commands. And in one of the most surprising verses in the Bible to many people, James in chapter 1 verse 25 calls the law the perfect law that brings freedom. Because God said, this is what you were made for. The way Tim Keller put it, he said, if you break God's laws, they break you. If you try to live against the design by which God made you, it will bring extra frustration. There is a sense in which we are to enjoy the gifts of God by enjoying them the way God says to enjoy them. Does that make sense? All right. Well, I know we're, we're running out of time, so let me just close this down. We, here's, how, here's how I would close. I would say we are to look for joy in the midst of the frustration. And one of my encouragements is to not let cynicism and perfectionism rob you of the real joy that God gives through often surprising little gifts. Because sometimes you need eyes to see the gifts and the joy. Look for and enjoy the, God, the gifts God gives, but always remember to connect the gifts to the giver of all good gifts and let it nurture a real hunger for even greater joy. And remember there's greater joy to come. Greater joy to come. So culti- cultivate gratitude, be in the moment, both regret and worry rob you of your joy. And finally I'll say this, joy is a big deal. Because understanding the heart of God is a big deal. Remember, Jesus had all joy and gave it up so that you could live in the confidence that the joy you can taste now is just the beginning. And I was thinking about this, this last little thing, I'll make this connection, with the Lord's Supper. You know, when you take of the Lord's Supper, you take usually just a small portion, just a crumb, especially compared to the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. But it's a crumb that comes to us from the hand of Christ Jesus. It's intimate. Eating is always connected with rich, intimate fellowship in the Bible. And even that is a a joy that meets us, sustains us. But whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we say this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So the Lord's Supper both feeds us, reminds us of what he's done, but it also whets our appetite and increases our hunger. That's what it means to live in the already, not yet. That's what it means to experience joy in the midst of frustration. And may that even begin to teach us how to enjoy all things in life. And and as Carter preached last week, friends are one of those things, right? They're a gift of the Lord. 
not perfect, often frustrating, but nurture and cultivate gratitude and pray for eyes to see the good gifts of God and to be one yourself. Isn't that a glorious thing? That you could actually be one of God's gifts. Let's pray together.